You're listening to part two of If You Build It, Will They Come, a two-part podcast series from producer Karen Given exploring the debate over public versus private funding of sports venues. You can find part one of this series and other episodes by searching Global Sport Matters Podcast wherever you listen. And now, on to the show. Welcome, everyone. Last week, as you might know, we focused on Indianapolis, a city that set out to become known as a sports town and actually succeeded at becoming known as a sports town at a relatively high cost to taxpayers. This week, we want to expand that conversation to talk more broadly about public-private stadium deals what's working, what's not working, and what might actually work better. I'm joined by Brad Humphreys, professor of economics at West Virginia University. Welcome, Brad. Thanks. Great to be here, Karen. And Judith Grant-Long, associate professor of sport management and urban planning at the University of Michigan. Welcome, Judith. Thanks so much, Karen. Happy to be here. And David Malmuth, president of David Malmuth Development, LLC. Welcome, David. Thanks for having me, Karen. So I actually want to start with something Neil DeMoss said to me last week. Neil is the author of a book and a blog, both called Field of Schemes. So you can probably guess from the title that Neil doesn't see an economic value to public funding for sports stadiums. Here's what he said about the academic literature on the subject. I've been waiting 25 years for somebody to show me a study that actually shows that there's some significant economic impact. And, you know, if somebody out there has one, please send it my way. I'd love to hear it. Brad, I happen to know that you have been looking into all the academic studies that have been done on this subject, and there are a lot of them. Have you found any that would prove Neil wrong? There's a couple of uh, papers that have been published in the past that that do find some positive economic impact. There, there's, a, there's a study published in 2010 by uh, Michael Davis and Christian End in Economic Inquiry that found that successful NFL franchises, uh, they were associated with um, some positive increases in real per capita income in metropolitan statistical areas. There's some dicey aspects of the methodology there. And I that, that paper's results certainly have not been borne out in any subsequent research. So I would say the vast preponderance of uh, evidence is that at best, building a new professional sports facility in your city can move economic activity around and concentrate it in in one place uh, one area of the city but in terms of overall tangible economic benefits uh the evidence is just not there and it's 30 years of evidence in peer-reviewed economics journals and public policy journals that show this So, yeah, I actually talked to a lot of people last week, and Neil was definitely the most extreme person I talked to, but everyone kind of agreed with this basic principle that just plunking down a sports venue somewhere and hoping for the best wasn't going to result in some magical economic growth. Um, So, Judith, you've been looking into a different way to think about these things, to combine a sports venue with some other things. Tell me about that. Well, I ju- just thinking very quickly about Brad's comment, and Brad and I, you know, know and work with a lot of the same people. And I think one of the key takeaways from this 30 year history of academic literature saying that there are very few economic benefits uh, associated with new sports venues, in particular public investment in, in sport venues, is that there are other explanations for why cities, counties, states, et cetera, continue to invest public money and that the economic rationale um, 
has has not satisfactorily answered um, those questions uh, in, in a way. I, I will say that that literature, I think, is is finally starting to move the needle in terms of the taxpayer and politician understanding of the issue, which I think is tremendously helpful. So when politicians and um, and and ratepayer groups are reading this, these reports, I think they have a much better understanding of the basic structure of economic impacts. And that's actually been a really big benefit of this literature. The level of literacy is so much higher than it used to be. So I'm super happy about that as somebody who engages in this field. That said, I'm also an urban planner and I, and I try to think about the urban development impacts of venues and how they alter the built environment how they, as Brad say, move economic activity around, but that has a physical outcome. It has an urban outcome. It has, um, you know, effects on the real estate market in, in large urban areas. So all of those types of questions are something that um, the literature is, is starting to take on in a little bit more of a serious way, because we think that urban development impacts can help explain why cities continue to invest public money into major league sports facilities when it's pretty clear that the economic impacts are minimal, at least associated with the venue themselves. So then we enter into this phase of sport and entertainment districts, which started with, um, you know, a very famous case in San Diego around Petco Park, um, where really a perfect storm of conditions created an opportunity for the, uh, in this case, a major league baseball baseball stadium to uh, really become the centerpiece of a large-scale redevelopment initiative that was successful in part because the host city was in a specific place with regard to their thinking about what they wanted to see in this location. And the team owner was very committed to, to doing something that was really beneficial from an urban redevelopment point of view. Um, and that kicked off a series of projects that have happened over the last 20 years. And the most recent data indicates that now 50% of major league venues are actually located in some form of a sport and entertainment district. Um, one third of those are what we call organic, two thirds of those are what we call sort of formal planned districts, kind of like what David's gonna speak about soon, I assume. But the sport and entertainment district is a way of trying to better connect the incidents of the venue with what might be able to happen in terms of uh, physical transformation around the venue and connecting um, the team to those outcomes because there's now uh, you know some profitability involved. So the sport and entertainment district phenomenon is very much tied to this idea of how um, venues can impact local environments that has another kind of public investment angle to it because the money's shifting away from investment or subsidy of the venues and into subsidy and investment of these larger projects. So that's a great time to bring David in because San Diego has done this before and they're trying to do it again. So tell us about the project that you're involved in and how it takes into effect all of these decades of research into sports venues and how to make money off of them. Well, the project I'm working on is called Midway Village Plus, and it is located <clears throat> on a 40-acre site owned by the city of San Diego in the Midway District. There's an existing arena there, which has been there for 60 years, and it is, to put it politely, underperforming. Um, and the city for many, many, many years has been seeking developer development team to come in and redevelop it. We got involved a couple of years ago. Uh, there was an RFP. We put a team together. 
and proposed at that time a renovation of the existing arena. Where our team actually was unsuccessful, um, but for a number of reasons, the city last year had to come back out again with a, another solicitation of proposals. But this time, focused on creating affordable housing, because this is property that's owned by the city under state law. Any excess land, which this has been deemed excess land, the priority is to create affordable housing. So when the project came back in, we reformed the team, put our affordable housing. Uh, team at the lead. And now we've proposed a project that has over 4,000 total residential units, about half of which are affordable. Partners are Toll Brothers on the market rate side and Bridge and Mac on the affordable side. Has about 250,000 square feet of retail, dining, entertainment uses. Dennis Cruzan is doing that, has a hotel. Has a new arena and a group called Revitate. There are partners on, on the arena side. And then we also have a music venue as a part of it as well. We're also working with the San Diego Loyal to do a temporary soccer team. They're the local uh, USL uh, soccer team. And I think the, the answer to your question is we, we've always viewed this project as, as a district, as a piece of a larger midway district. So anyway, now there's a competition. We're one of the three teams. Now, having been in the development business for 40 years and specializing in transformation, transformational projects, like 42nd Street, like Hollywood and Heinland, I can tell you it is all about understanding urban planning principles. This isn't just about plunking down anything. And to the extent that prior stadia weren't successful, that shouldn't surprise anybody. They weren't integrated into the surrounding fabric in a way that actually made planning sense and economic development sense. I'd also make a big distinction between an arena and a football stadium or even a baseball stadium. Petco is cited as a fantastic example of how a use can become a, a generator for, for many of the reasons you discussed, but still, you know, you've only got 80 something home home games, right? For a sports venue, you like a, like an arena, you've got 150, maybe 200 lit nights, right? So the economic activity potential is that much greater, but that alone does not mean that it's actually going to work. How it gets connected to the local community, the traffic issues have to be addressed. The transit issues have to be addressed. Surrounding issues have to be comfortable with that kind of a traffic generator. It's a lot of subtlety in order to make these kinds of projects successful in their own right, but also to turn them into the kind of catalytic components that the city is seeking. And one last thing that I would say is there is no expectation on our part that the public's going to step in and finance this. Notwithstanding the fact the city of San Diego put money into Petco, they rejected putting up a huge amount of money to build a new uh, football stadium for the Chargers downtown. And they were widely lauded, lauded in, in national press for not taking the bait and not being willing to step up to spend a huge amount of money to put money in the pockets of the, of the, of the charter owners. Well, they ended up moving to Los Angeles. It's a whole other story. The appetite for citizens of the city to San Diego to write a big check is just about zero. So to the extent that we're able to come up with a structure that works, it's going to have to be from incremental revenues that the project generates. And those project, those project revenues are gonna to have to be solid. So one of the pieces of analysis we're doing is what's not just the, the, the project uh, economic fiscal impacts, what's the district-wide fiscal and impact, uh, economic impacts of, of, this, of this, uh, this development. And I suppose for us, the good news is that the Midway has always been one of the least developed and historically underdeveloped areas of San Diego. Yeah. Yeah. So you said um, the city isn't going to write a big check, but are some of the aspects of this going to receive public funding, infrastructure funding? It's not clear. Thing? You know, we're right in the middle of that negotiation right now. So and it is a competition. So each of the teams is going to propose 
a different public-private partnership. And we don't know what the other teams are going to propose. Our philosophy is that we should be utilizing revenues that are directly created by this project, both direct and indirect. And, and this is why it's so important to really understand what does the project do, not just for the 48 acres, but how does it impact the 1,000 acres of the Midway site? Because if we get it right, we think that, that, the, that the potential is normal. And I say that based on the experience of doing the New Amsterdam Theater, which wasn't a sports venue, but it was an entertainment venue on 42nd Street. I was with Walt Disney Company. That project was completed in 1997. And subsequent to that, it generated $2 billion of private investment within the span of about five years. So, and if you ask the people in the city, in the state of New York, they'll tell you it's one of the most extraordinary economic development stories they've ever been involved with. That's why I said, it's not just doing any project or any sports venue and plunking it down anywhere. It takes enormous amounts of thoughtfulness and creativity and, and a true public-private partnership because the illusion of these deals is that it's all up to the public sector to execute. Nothing could be further from the truth. There's no possible way to make a successful public-private partnership without a very strong public sector partner that understands how their role is critical to the overall success and the long-term success of the project. All right. So, so Brad, you've done research into venues that have been put into places to try to revitalize. What are the, some of the things that David and his team have to watch out for and be careful about? Oh, I wouldn't begin to tell David and his team what to do. I'm <laughs> <laughs> fair, fair. He's an expert. I, I tell you uh, one, uh, I think, important point that David raises is if you look at this in a broader context of just this idea that cities clearly, you know, revitalization of certain areas of cities is a is a really huge issue facing cities all over the country. Um, and David makes this point that that there are many alternatives to professional sports facilities that are that are known to be very effective, right? And I would I would just argue that uh, a new arena or a new stadium looks like the worst of any possible option that one might use to revitalize a part of a city. Why not? Why not put together a tech hub? Why not put together an entertainment district where uh, you know you don't need a football stadium or a basketball arena to get uh, consumer amenity providers to agglomerate in a certain area. There are many other factors that could do that. And I think it, David also makes an important point that uh, there's a lot of zoning laws and things like that that can have a really important uh, impact on this that don't necessarily have to be tied to sports at all. Right. So as, a, as an urban economist who studies broader issues that are facing cities, uh, I, I just think, you know, it, so many places just get it in their head that it's got to be a baseball stadium uh, in order to drive this when they need to think more broadly. And I think it's great that David is is uh, is pushing this this idea that there are many, many, many things that could do this that are better for your local economy than than a professional baseball team. David, as I understand it, there currently is not a major league, minor league. Uh, well, there, there might be a minor league team playing in that arena that I don't know about. Yeah, there's a minor league hockey team that plays. There's a lacrosse team that plays. Um, so <clears throat> the venue that we're proposing would be 
concerts first, music first, because yeah. that's really the only, it's like Kansas City. There's no, there's no way to justify it based on right. an anchor NBA, NHL franchise. So the project does not include a major league um, sports element in it. And as such, it is a little bit difficult to compare to other projects that do include um, those elements and carry all of the controversies that come with them. So the project that David's talking about is much more comparable, say, to uh, Climate Pledge Arena in Seattle. And you may say, well, Climate Pledge has an NHL team. They have the new Kraken, or they're probably going to get an NBA franchise. But in fact, Climate Pledge was built or was renovated. I mean, they, they saved the roof and basically everything else was built new. So one can argue about the state, the, the extent of renovation. Um, but, the, but the main premise behind uh, Climate Pledge Arena is to be responsive to the music industry. It, it, is, uh, it represents an inversion of the thinking around arenas in particular, which are now becoming a much more distinct set of, of facilities. So the inversion is that it used to be that you had a team, preferably two, an NHL team and an NBA team that you could house in your arena, and then automatically you had 80 event days during the regular season, 82 to be precise. Um, and then you were hosting some concerts and so forth. But the, the main element of profitability was, was based on sports. Ophiu Group and the Seattle Arena, one of the things that's so uh, interesting and new that they are doing this is that this is primarily geared to the music industry, to concerts and so forth. And the idea that they have an NHL team coming, terrific. It was definitely part of the thinking. Um, you guys probably know that there's a connection between the owner of Oakview Group, Tim Ligwicki, and then his brother, Todd Ligwicki, who's who's uh, the head of the Kraken. Um, you know, so definitely these guys were talking to one another as, as the project was being built. But the logic of arenas is shifting to music first, sports second. Right. So the idea that in, uh, you know, in, in this project, the San Diego Midway project, which I admit, David, I, I don't know a tremendous amount about, it's difficult to compare it to um, other kinds of projects where the there is the major league element, which brings with it uh, an entire set of expectations around um, the politics of, of ownership, the politics of the host city, uh, you know, and, and this very troubling and controversial history around public investment. So this is a very different kind of project, and I'm not sure we're comparing um, apples to apples, although I am very excited to hear about the affordability pledge that's part of the San Diego project, mainly because I've been in San Diego, and, you know, everybody's in San Diego and going, wow, I wish I could live here. And then you look at the real estate listings and go, yeah, wow, maybe I could live 40 minutes out of, outside of the city and, and be able to afford it. So I, I think that's a great pledge. No, it's a great it's a great point. You know, the, the biggest public policy objective of this project is not the arena. It's the affordable housing. <clears throat> it's not even a, it's not even close. So which is why over half of our units are either affordable, uh, tax credit affordable, meaning below 60 percent AMI, or they're affordable to people between 80 and 110 percent of AMI. So, so 2,210 of our total, 40, 4,210 are either affordable, that's 1,610, and then 600 of, of them are middle income. That is a new paradigm. And we're super proud that we are part of a team that's proposing to create a, an entirely new model for housing in a district that will have an arena and a music venue in addition. 
And th these are very difficult, subtle urban planning questions to figure out how to make all of that stuff work at a scale and a density that ends up making sense with adequate services and schools and public amenities and parks and retail, all of those other things. But we do think that the arena is a critical part of the mix. And one of the things that's salient here is San Diego does not have a world-class arena. <clears throat> We've got a 60-year-old arena. That's an embarrassment. And, and it's not ADA compliant. It's not, it's not a good guest experience. And the mayor wants a new arena. Recognize we don't have a pro sports team to put in it right now. It may not. And that's okay. It does make it very challenging to figure out how to finance the thing. But um, but we but we do believe that we have to look holistically at what this project can create, what kinds of new revenue streams it creates, what kind of impacts it has long term, and then try to forge a creative partnership with the city and with the community to see if we can figure out a way to do this. Brad, you clearly have thoughts. Let us know. <laughs> I, I would I, I have to push back on you, on you a little bit here, David. Well, first, I don't understand. I, I've, I've never understood why it is San Diego is a world class city. Why right. does San Diego, in order to be uh, in order to be uh, a successful um, city, need a world class arena? Well, I'll give you a reason. So the mayor says, "Why isn't Beyonce coming to San Diego to play?" And the answer is, her promoters. We well, don't have a decent place for her to play that's at the right size. So the mayor says, "Listen, how can I be world class if I can't go to see Beyonce in my hometown?" So th this is not exactly like having the pride associated with the sports team, but there's a pride factor associated with it, which is if you want to be a world-class city, you should have world-class venues for talent to play. I, I agree completely. And in fact, there's a literature in economics that values that, that places, it's, it uses a, an approach called the contingent valuation method to try to put a dollar value on intangibles like living in a world-class city. Right. Every one of those papers, and there are many, estimate important and positive benefits, but it's never the size of the typical average subsidy that is provided to a professional sports team for a new facility. Just not that big. I don't disagree, which is why, you know, in a rational world, cities wouldn't be putting up a lot of money to be able to make these venues happen, right? There, there needs to be a different economic model that enables these projects to be built without the public writing a big check. And because of the experience we had with the Chargers asking for a huge check, there's a lot of skepticism about whether taxpayers here should be writing a check to support this. Doesn't mean they don't want it. It's just that they'd like to figure out some way to get it, but not have to personally subsidize it. Brad, can you explain from an economics point of view why there are better investments to be made than um, venues? We'll just make it venues, not specific of whether there's sports in there or music in there. Yeah, I mean, professional sports teams. Most, of, if you look at their uh, at their uh, financial structure and the economics of how those work, um, they employ very few people. And most of the athletes don't live full time in, in the area where they're performing. And that means there's a lot of leakages of the salaries out of the, out of the city and into other areas. And then it just doesn't spill over. Like, for example, if you, if, if you had a concert venue, if you had a, a, a business incubator or something like that, the people that are, that are making the big uh, dollars off of that are living in the community. If you open a hospital, right? The doctors, the administrators making big salaries are living in the community. Those dollars are getting recirculated in the local area and that's beneficial. You know, a lot of team owners don't live in the cities where their teams play. A lot of players don't live there full time. They're just not. And also they're making big salaries, but 
economically, we know if you make a million dollars a year, you're saving most of it and you're not you know, spending 90% of that. So if the jobs that are created by these venues aren't where the benefit is, how do we find a benefit? Or is there one? So the idea, you know, the fundamental premise here is that there's a public investment in a venue, correct? And and there's a set of analyses that look at the question of public investments specifically for venues that are intended to primarily be used for major league sports. That's a very specific set of the literature because it responds to a specific industry, which is professional sports, that has a business model that underlies it, which, as Brad was was alluding to, is a substantially profitable, increasingly, by the way, profitable business model, whereby many of the teams have a very difficult case um, to make with with taxpayers to say, yes, we really need your money because we can't afford to do it ourselves. You know, at, at this point, that's a very different argument to make, which is why uh, you know, part of the rationale for extending into these sport and entertainment districts because they're able to acquire public subsidies and investments through other pathways. So let's then look at this broader set of venues, which in the in the in the world of large-scale public assembly facilities can include sports anchors venue, sports anchored venues, which is major league, minor league, college, so on and so forth, um, includes performing arts venues of the nature that David was talking about in the context of the 42nd Street redevelopment, which not just doesn't only include New Amsterdam, of course, includes uh, a number of investments in that area. Um, and then there's also convention centers. Um, so if we think of those three categories as being large scale public assembly venues, there's actually a different literature associated with each set. Um, and convention centers, just to do this really quickly, the convention centers are largely are largely publicly funded, you know, almost 100%. Um, they're, they're viewed as an economic development loss leader within a community. The public sector plays, pays completely for the convention center. The convention center brings in a ton of shows and events, and all of those attendees stay in hotels, rent cars, uh, go to restaurants, use nightclubs, right? So the, so the idea of an economic benefit there is a much easier case uh, to make. Performing arts venues are tricky as well. Um, there isn't always a lot of public support for full-scale um, capital investment. Um, and instead, what happens, as David, I'm sure, well knows, is the philanthropic sector picks up a lot of the tabs. So there are organizations, symphonies, um, opera companies, so on and so forth, that, that pick up um, part of the capital expenditure as well as part of the operating expenditure. But I think in the context of performing arts venues, it's very easy to make the case that that the benefit profile is something that's that's quite different, right? So it's it's not only the amenity value of being able to attend um, all of these wonderful events, but the idea that that uh, arts and culture pervade the entire community in a way that's positive, right? So a contingent valuation survey of the nature that Brad was talking about um, yields po more positive benefits in, in that particular category, which leaves us with you know sports venues and 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 increasingly in the arena space, which is why it's tricky to have this conversation centered on the Midway project, um, is because it doesn't at this point have um, a major league tenant in the picture, although people may be thinking it. But but this idea, just to get to the benefits really quickly to round the corner on this, on this lengthy explanation, the benefit profile for, um, for a music-oriented venue 
um, it's a it's not necessarily as highbrow as performing arts and you know live theater and opera and so forth but i think there is tremendous amenity value um, and and that's a different and broader category of amenity value than just sports fans um, which is interesting so this is where in the in the in the venues world um, the the thinking lies and each of those categories has different urban development impacts as well so so Brad when you hear all of these like it's not just a stadium it's this it's that it's the other well, how do you respond my my stock response to this is always uh, well if all those other things are so great why do you have to have a, a sports facility in the middle <laughs> at all why, why can't why can't you do something else? And why does this? Why do these these things so frequently get intimately tied up with, uh, with having a, a professional sports team or a professional sports facility as the anchor? And I, I don't see any reason that it has to. I mean, if you need affordable housing in your city, build affordable housing. You know, why do you, why do you need to give three hundred million dollars to a billionaire sports team owner as a subsidy, uh, as a justification for building affordable housing? We all know cities need affordable housing. Well, I just I would like to put in a I'd like I'd like to put in a, a note for non-binary thinking. You know, it's not either or, right? You know, in urban places, there's room for lots of different kinds of uses, and oftentimes urban spaces benefit from having lots of different kinds of diverse uses, right? So it um, <clears throat> it's it's not it there's nuance. That's the point. Every project, every site. You got to look at specifically what are you proposing? Why are you proposing it? What's the economic rationale for proposing it? How does it benefit other uses, short and long term? And and what's the deal? You know, if it's publicly owned land, what's the deal? What what are we proposing to bring as a development team? And what is it we're asking the city to bring? And you know, ultimately, a decision has to be made about whether or not that's a rational business decision on both sides, and and that it does make sense, in fact, to proceed to invest in a project that has the potential for creation, creating these, you know, long-term benefits. Yeah, but here's the problem with basing these sort of projects on professional sports. Uh, as a matter of public policy, professional sports leagues are exempt from antitrust law. Explicitly in the case of Major League Baseball or implicitly in the case of the other, other main sports. And that means the leagues get to determine how many teams are in those leagues and uh, where those teams are located. There is no other alternative uh, that one might base this sort of redevelopment on that operates under those conditions. You're only getting uh, you're only getting a, a NHL franchise if the league lets you have it, and and that's it. And this is why I I mentioned earlier that building a venue without a team is probably the worst decision you could make because it just provides other team owners with outside options to extract money out of the local government to get their new arena. I mean, that's what Tampa Bay, they built the baseball stadium down there. They didn't have a, they didn't have the Rays, but the Chicago White Sox threatened to move to Tampa Bay and the, and Chicago and Illinois had to come up with a 100% publicly financed new baseball stadium for the White Sox because the, there, it gives credible uh, move threats to team owners. So I'll, I'll point this out as well. Why is it that Los Angeles, California, the second largest media market in the United States, did not have a professional football team in it for 20 years? And a simple Google search will point will show you that 17 different teams threatened to move to Los Angeles, football teams threatened to move to Los Angeles over that 20 year period. That, that's, that's what makes sports different from anything else, because you're dealing with that 
And the Congress has apparently no appetite whatsoever for addressing the antitrust exemption that we have given professional sports leagues as a matter of public yeah, policy. I'm sure the NHL, the NFL had second thought misgivings about allowing that stocking horse to be taken away. Sure they did. Of course they did. <laughs> of course they did. David, David, do you ever find yourself worried about that? Like, are you going to create something that is going to be a future way of, of teams getting money out of their cities? It's not, it's out of our control. You know, I got enough stuff to worry about without having to put that on the list, right? We've got a multi-billion dollar project we've got to figure out how to finance. And uh, if we're successful at doing it, I'll feel good about it. And if, you know, at some future point in time, some other team wants to use this arena as leverage, it's not really something that I can do anything about. That's right. It's up to the Congress or the courts to fix this problem. Right, right. I mean, like, I don't think there's any any of us, anyone I've ever talked to who doesn't say this is a problem. I haven't asked a team owner about it, but if I did. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, they're not going to tell you it's a problem. They're going to be they're going to be telling you, look, you know, I put up X billion dollars and if I can get leverage by threatening. It's uh, frankly why I think a lot of people have become sour on professional sports. You know, it's become so manifestly clear that it's not about the fans. It's not about the city. It's not about all the things they profess it that it's about. It's about the money. Right. I personally have become much less interested in sports as that's become manifestly obvious. You know, there's still moments of exaltation. I watched the finals and, you know, I watched Steph Curry play and I think that's poetry. I love that. I did not love that just for the record oh, in Boston, okay. well, David. All right. <laughs> so there are those moments and, you know, sports love is a generational thing. I grew up loving the Dodgers and loving the Rams. I was devastated when the Rams left LA and went down to Anaheim of all places and St. Louis and then back again. And yeah, you know, I was part of the group that was opposing the Chargers getting a subsidy to build a stadium in downtown because I thought it was such a profoundly bad idea. So, um, you know, I'm not I'm not of the development school where I'm holding my hand out saying, oh, you know, so you're going to have to come across with half a billion dollars in order to make this project happen. That's done, I hope, because that just doesn't work. So we all have to come up with different economic models if we want to make our projects successful. I mean, you say it's done, you say it doesn't work, and it just worked in Buffalo, right? Like they just got the money. I don't know. Like if we all agree that these subsidies are a bad idea and that there are better ways to pay for sports venues and to make it work economically, what is it? I mean, this is the unanswerable question. What is it going to take for this to stop, for subsidies to stop? Well, i just say this. I've, had, I've been involved in these two redevelopment projects in Hollywood and, and, and in, in, in New York. You know, in this case of New York, they, they made a soft loan of $30 million dollars. It was a loan. And then the balance of the equity came from Walt Disney Company. And if you ask the people in the city and the state, was that a good soft loan to make? Was that a good way to spur economic development? They will tell you it was the best investment that they've ever made. Okay. So not all investments are created equal, right? Again, you have to look at the deal, the project, the sponsor. What do you think the likelihood is that it will in fact create this sort of catalytic effect? And you know, my fu fundamental belief is it's all about the real estate. You know, if it's not great real estate and it doesn't support the mix of uses that you're proposing, no amount of subsidy is going to make the project successful. None, zero. So that, that's really the kind of analysis that needs to happen in order to justify any investment of any kind in any project. Yeah, so so here's one of the challenges with that, and and I will say um, both Brad and I are probably on top of these numbers because it's part of what we do. 
Um, but the, on average, the public contribution to venue construction itself is declining. Um, not, you know, not zero. <laughs> it's not zero, but it's not what it was 20 years ago, which I like to attribute to my economics colleagues, you know, helping to change the public discourse and the math. Um, but what is happening is that the subsidies, in fact, are being transferred from the venue project to the overall district project. Um, and a lot of my work, my early work has been on hidden subsidies. And I wanted to um, maybe have a little conversation about the role of tax increment financing or TIFs in the context of these projects, because there can be a, a fairly, um, I think, fair debate and a fair question asked whether TIFs constitute a public subsidy, because the rhetoric in the development community is that these uh, that TIFs, in fact, help the development, quote, pay for itself, unquote, right, um, which is a very specific kind of narrative that's that's built into these projects that makes them seem that they're they're privately funded, that this increment, in fact, has no public cost. Um, but in fact, the the increment, the idea just for for anybody listening to this who may not know what TIFs mean, the idea is that um, the it is only the uh, additional revenues, a portion of the additional revenues from new development around a venue or around a project that are then used to pay off the bonds or any that would have helped with infrastructure. Typically, it's infrastructure, land acquisition, and so forth. Um, so the rhetoric that suggests that those increments, those property tax increments that would otherwise go uh, to uh, the public sector entities to suggest that those are paying because they're paying for the project that they're paying for themselves, um, I think you can have a pretty good economic dialogue about whether or not those, in fact, constitute a public subsidy. And I think the argument um, uh, would probably fall pretty squarely amongst the folks that I hang out with, um, that it is a public subsidy. So, so the role of tax increment financing, which has been very pronounced in, um, you know, big cases. So we've had Detroit, Edmonton, um, you know, and, and other cases where, where TIF is really big. On average, the TIFs are pretty small. In fact, I had a doctoral student, uh, Robert Soroka, who just finished last year and wrote an absolutely brilliant doctoral dissertation on the role of tax increment financing for sports venues. And uh, he found that, you know, on average, they're pretty small, so that's less concerning, but they do have the ability to siphon important public funds from other important public activities, including education, health services, and so on and so forth. So well, there's rhetoric just, around tax okay, increment financing. Let me just push back on it. Let me just push back. I get it. And, and certainly, if you believe that that increment would exist without whatever whatever use, don't just call it sports venue, whatever use was created there, if you thought that that tax increment would happen, then you can say, oh, that's that's a quote subsidy. By the way, I prefer the word investment as opposed to a subsidy, as a personal bias. I don't. Yeah, it's just economists <laughs> versus the world, right? You think subsidies a giveaway, and I think in the case of Hollywood and in New York, I thought those were investments. Subsidy is not equivalent with, with, uh, with a giveaway. But why not call it an investment? Why not look at the return in terms of revenues, in terms of jobs, I, I think there there is legitimately a, a a but for argument for certain kinds of uses that that require tax increment to pay for things that the public typically would pay for, like parks, like infrastructure. To put all of that on the private development side is unrealistic. That will all will, you know it's, we know what'll happen? Nothing. Nothing will get developed, and that's not a good answer either. 
right so so david i i will in 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 the in the collegial and and jovial uh terminology of pushing back <laughs> so you know I, I i'm certainly familiar with the but for argument uh you know clearly i you know i'm an urban planner so that's a that's a big part of what we discuss in our world um and i think the challenge with the but for rationale and i certainly understand that there's a there's an entire private industry that revolves around creating these projects and by the way I love sport and entertainment districts. I think they're fun. I love sports. I love going to them. I, I actually like them as part of a city. I just prefer that we that taxpayers don't pay for them. <laughs> that, that's my position. I, I, I like them as anchors of redevelopment. I, I have you know less of an issue than some of my um, economist colleagues on this point. Um, but I think the but for issue is you have to be careful um, about making that argument because people tend to look at it at one point in time is one of the challenges. So that particular site in San Diego, I mean, I know San Diego, the, you know, that the land market is just nuts. And you would assume that people would be able to build market rate housing. If you made the land available, market rate housing would land pretty quickly um, in San Diego on just about any site. This is a particular site because it's owned by the public sector. So there's some, you know, redevelopment opportunities that might have a different benefit profile associated with them. But this no notion of but for being evaluated at a specific moment in time tends not to think about what the real estate market might be 10 years down the road. It tends not to think about other strategic goals that a municipality might have. So it doesn't have to be but for at this particular moment in time. And in San Diego, that's a very different market than a but for question in, um, in you know, suburban Cleveland. It's a different but for argument than in Orchard Park, um, New York, which is, of course, just right outside Buffalo. So, um, so we just, you know, I, again, I, I appreciate the narrative and I appreciate the industry and I actually love sport and entertainment districts, but unpacking this narrative and, and the language, um, if you don't want to get picked on um, by all of my very smart economist friends, um, you, you have to be, you know, sort of very judicious in, in the use of the terminology. Brad, I can tell you are itching to talk, so <laughs> go for it. Well, you know, the first thing, I just, I just want to shout out to Judith. She does, she, she does the really hard and um, uh, dirty work of collecting all the details on all of these uh, individual stadium and arena deals. And I couldn't do my job without her. And uh, uh, I just want to uh, uh, thank her for, for doing that and let her know how much the economics community appreciates uh, the work that, that she does. So about the but-for analysis, uh, the, the rhetoric in the economics community would be that uh, these government revenue, tax revenues have opportunity costs. And we need to take that into account when, when we're assessing whether or not these TIF districts work. And I think TIF districts are often held out as you know, a silver bullet, but uh, they don't always work out. Ask them in Louisville, Kentucky, uh, how the TIF district around the KFC Yum Center worked out there. It didn't. They can't, in fact, the tax revenues did not go up enough to cover the interest payments on the bonds they floated to build that. And I, you know, I want to echo Judith's point here. Uh, yeah, I know uh, San Diego's a success story, but I, I was living in Edmonton when the whole debate about the Rogers Center was going on. And I ar argued many times that what works in San Diego might not work in Edmonton or might not work in Orchard Park. And I think that's really important to, to bear in mind when we're uh, you know, interpreting what might and might not work to uh, it'll take off like it did somewhere else. And I think there's so many, David, David, you've already made this point. There are so many idiosyncratic 
features of any redevelopment project that uh, I I just I don't see how it scales to anywhere else. What do you mean by that? You don't see how it scales? Well, I don't I don't see how you can just say, all right, well, look, this is this baseball stadium in San Diego is the best thing since sliced bread. It worked there. It'll certainly work here. I hear that logic a lot when uh, when there's a public debate going on in a city about the subsidization of a new professional sports facility. From a developer perspective, that is an extremely unsophisticated argument to make to suggest that you can take a case from some other location and then, and, you know, and like a spaceship, it lands in, in, that, in, in your city and it's going to replicate the same, the same impact. That's bunk. That's not how it works. So you guys are agreeing <laughs> here, right? That's right. Yes. That's right. Yes. I heard it for years in Edmonton. Well, you know, you're going to, you're going to make the case if you think it strengthens your, your, your ability to be able to get, you know, public investment, but it's garbage. You know, the, the, there, there couldn't be two more separate, different, unique locations than, than Edmonton and San Diego, right? By the way, I did a huge project happened over the last 10 years, done a project called Idea District in the Upper East Village, which benefited because it was great real estate, but it also benefited from the momentum that had been created by Petco. So when I would I would never argue that Petco wouldn't have been developed, but for the, the baseball stadium, it accelerated it, it probably created a higher standard of quality. It's another thing we haven't even talked about here. What kinds of values are embedded in the project and how are those going to translate into future into in, in a future development that happens within that district. Because you're not you're not just doing anything. You're creating a standard that hopefully other projects around you are going to respond to. And if the city again is a good partner, they're going to push you to try to do something that's really extraordinary so that they can say, hey, these guys are willing to do something really special. You should be too. One of the things that I'm thinking about um, you know, again, as sort of somebody who does urban planning and tries to riff off of the, the, the great stuff that Brad and Andy Zimbalist and other folks do, um, is that the subsidies are shifting from the deal, from the venue, from, from mm -hmm. the construction of the venue. Um, they're, they're shifting, and in part because of the public discourse is not accepting that these subsidies are a good idea because they're very visible and they're understandable, but they're shifting to these larger real estate development projects. And um, one of the pieces that I'm trying to understand um, from an urbanistic point of view is, and this isn't necessarily, David, applicable to your project because it's smaller, um, but in the context of District Detroit, SoFi, um, the, the team owners are becoming city builders. Um, they're getting a monopoly in effect, right? This monopoly context, Brad, is extending to their control of large portions of cities. And traditionally, um, you know, you'd have to go back to the 30s and the 20s to the Rockefellers to find people that were able to control the construction of so much of a city. Um, and, and the way that they do that, the way that they choose their development partners, the way the, the mix of uses is, is constructed, um, this is a very new phenomenon in cities. So trying to understand the urbanistic implications of creating effectively a, a, a land monopoly over a large swath of land is, and it, District Detroit is the obvious example here, where the Illich family was basically just gifted a, a large part of Detroit and will single-handedly determine um, the outcome of a large part of that city for generations. Um, and, and so to me, that, that's a really interesting piece of the puzzle that is happening as a result of the subsidies declining in the context of the capital part of the project and then shifting into these to these other parts. Again, David, not super relevant to, to your No, it's an interesting, project, it's interesting know, right? John Morse yeah. didn't make his money on Petco, you know, the, I mean, uh, on the San Diego deal, you know, the money was made on the ancillary development.
Mm-hmm. And they knew that they, you know, he's a real estate developer. So he yeah. understood perfectly what was going on. Yeah, we are almost out of time. So I don't want to delve into a new topic. But anyone want to sum this up for us? What can we walk away from this with a slight positive note? I'm not going to look to Brad for that. Um <laughs> I'm the wrong guy for that. (laughs) Something to make us feel like we're not, you know, doomed forever to be paying subsidies, actual subsidies to major league sports teams. You know, my reading of the, my reading of the zeitgeist, we're over it. You know, as a society, our attitude is these guys are billionaires. Why should we be writing checks to make them, you know, billionaires plus? So I think the taxpayers in New York State would uh, would disagree strongly with you there. They just gave away $750 million uh, in taxpayer money. I, I don't see it ending. I used to think that that uh, eventually somebody would listen to the economists in the room and uh, and not do this. But I, I mean, they're taught Dan Snyder, Washington commanders, playing off different jurisdictions in the in the DMV against each other to get a subsidy. I, I think will this it is possible that this could end and we would stop these subsidies. But here's here's what I think has to happen. The playing field has to change in that we can't let leagues have monopoly power to control how many teams are in leagues. Uh, because we can, it's easy enough to find an example where incredibly popular professional sports and facilities are not subsidized. Europe. Professional soccer teams in Europe build their own facilities, own their own facilities, operate their own facilities, right? But the promotion relegation system that's in place in those professional soccer leagues um, mean that, you know, no team has ever left, no, no team has ever moved or threatened to move anywhere in Europe, with one exception that, I, that everybody, every Brit that I tell this to always throws in my face, but they don't move, right? And they don't move. And so that's why the subsidies aren't there. So if we uh, as a matter of public policy, wouldn't provide team owners with uh, uh, options to threaten to move their team somewhere else if they don't get what they want, we will stop paying these subsidies. All right. Well, that might be the best positive note we can end on. Um, I've been joined by Brad Humphreys, professor of economics at West Virginia University. Thanks, Brad. Thanks so much, Karen. I really enjoyed this and I enjoyed uh, uh, my discussion with Judith and David as well. And Judith Grant Long, Associate Professor of Sport Management and Urban Planning at the University of Michigan. Thanks, Judith. Thanks so much for having me. Great to meet you, David, and wonderful as always to see my my good colleague, Brad Humphreys. And David Malmuth, President of David Malmuth Development, LLC. Thanks, David. Thank you. Fun conversation. This episode was produced by Karen Given. Be sure to subscribe to the Global Sport Matters podcast wherever you listen to get notified of new episodes. Find more stories, research, and articles in our June digital issue, The Return on Our Sports Investment, now live at globalsportmatters.com. Global Sport Matters podcast is a production of the Global Sport Institute at Arizona State University. Our senior coordinator of digital content is Brendan Clean. Our manager of strategic initiative is me, Kendall Jones, and our marketing and event assistants are Luke Padway, Kate Nelson, and Aiden Corrales. You can also find and follow us on Twitter. We're at Global Sport MTRS.